Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I am your host, James Huang. I'm Dave Rome. And I'm Kaylee Fritz. We are, unfortunately, without our pro mechanic, Zach Edwards of the Bullard Gruppetto, again this week. Last I heard, Ruth was actually trying to extract him from a giant vat of tubular glue that he apparently had fallen into. So, I mean, if anyone's ever glued tubulars out there, you know that Ruth's got a very limited amount of time right, to get to get him out of there. So, good luck it's with that. Sticky one. stuff. Hopefully, he'll be back in two. Hardening weeks. by the minute. It is hardening by the minute. So, you know, we'll, we'll if we can't get him out, we're just gonna have to find another mechanic. Oh, so well. we'll see. <laughs> Nevertheless, we still have a great big show in store for you today. First and foremost, we will go over the news and tech from the last few days like we usually do. We will then debate this weird idea of extending the lifespan of your Warnock cassettes with a Dremel tool. We'll dive into the return of magnesium as a new frame material. And then, as usual, we will finish with a round of Ask the Mechanic without our mechanic. Sad. I'll just answer all the questions. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, so we'll basically just, just we're basically just going to delete that whole section. So... We're introducing the Ask a Mechanic section here, and if there just isn't one later, you'll know why. (laughs) Anyway, I know we're supposed to be heading into winter here in the Northern Hemisphere, but we've all actually been enjoying some pretty awesome weather everywhere this week, at least for both of us on both sides of the equator. Everyone's spending some time riding their bikes lately instead of doom scrolling? Mm, A little bit. Still doing a fair amount of doom, doom scrolling. Can't really stop myself. I was until the plague caught up to me. Mm. But just know. to be to be clear, Dave does not have coronavirus. Well, I did get tested yesterday, and we don't know for sure just yet. So. Oh, so you might <laughs> um, have coronavirus. Oh, uh, well, I don't think I don't think I do. But I was just being a good citizen, and you know, these days if you sneeze, you should get tested. So, um, yeah, I was I was doing that, but you know, it's good. I'm back to my race weight by just laying in bed, and uh, it's it's all good right now. All right, well done, well done. All right. With that, uh, I don't really need to have that mental image in my head, so I'm gonna just go ahead and clear that. Thank you. Let's get in. Let's get into the news. Dave, you have kind of been joking lately that we are in kind of the, I guess you've called it the golden age of chain lube. Mm-hmm. And you laughed at just, me. You all laughed at me, but <laughs> I was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and now this week, Ceramic Speed and Silka have announced their latest formulations that promise both lower friction and better wear. Dave, what are we looking at here? Yeah, so there's two very different lubes being released here. So Ceramic Speed have updated their UFO Drip, which is uh, a wax-based drip lube, um, kind of designed as a a more accessible lube than a um, submersion-based wax, like a melt-on wax. And uh, yeah, I guess they were probably the first to do a super fast drip loop for the market and others followed and this is now a an overhauled version of that so it's it's said to be the the fastest drip loop on the market it's meant to be way more durable than before um which cheaper than before too right much cheaper than before um you'll get about ten thousand kilometers out of a i think it's a 45 dollar bottle of lube uh which is pretty good uh it's not good and it's not good no it's not good well, how much? How much? How many? How many kilometers do you get out of your cheaper bottles? I don't know, but they're like seven dollars. <laughs> they're not forty-five dollars. <laughs> so I'm so definitely this is, getting. This is a really important. Yeah. So this is something that's really important to discuss, which is, uh, you know, as we've as we've covered before, I've got an article called "The Holy Grail of Chain Lubes," which is 
a good chain lube will actually reduce your drivetrain wear. So you can save money in the long run by running a good chain lube that doesn't attract grit and doesn't bring in all sorts of wear into your drivetrain. Uh, so you can really prolong the life of your chain and your cassette and chain rings by using a lube that stays clean. Um, and a lube like this or like the new uh, Silka Super Secret Lube that was released a few months ago, these things aim to be basically um, completely dry to touch. So they stay clean. They don't get let grit get into the chain. Um, so yeah, long run, you you know, short term, you're paying more for a bottle of lube. Long run, you could actually work out to be saving money because you're not going through chains as often. I don't believe it. Kayla, you don't replace chains anyway. You just get new exactly. bikes. <laughs> I think other people should try this. Yeah. Uh, so start by getting a job in the bike industry uh, and then become a bike reviewer and then get bikes sent to you on a somewhat regular basis. And then you just never have to worry about drivetrain wear anymore. And this is exactly the thing that generates a bunch of negative comments <laughs> on our iTunes page. <laughs> so ju just to be clear, I did have Kaylee's bike over here to install some parts on it the other day. And uh, when Kaylee jokes about not really taking good care of his bike, he is not joking, as it turns out. <laughs> so when we say to not take Kaylee's advice on mechanical things, we're not joking on that it either. <laughs> My bike works great. I don't know what you're talking about. Doesn't make any noise. Yeah, yeah. As long as it's not making noise, uh -huh. I'm happy. Dave, I think uh, I think you posted something on the on the the work Slack channel either yesterday or t or a couple days ago or something like that, or somebody posted something about how way back in the day there was an advertisement for, uh, like premium premium sperm whale oil as oh, yeah. like the best chain lubricant out there. Yep, that was on the Velo Club Slack, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yep. that's what it was. Yep. Uh, yeah. Apparently, you uh, back in the 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 late late 1800s you uh should only lube your bicycle with the finest sperm oil <laughs> these days i'd say that is uh ethically incorrect but um yeah but i wonder can you still buy sperm whale oil um, I, I i unfortunately think you probably could google.com mm. <laughs> sperm whale oil for Let's sale just hope it's not yeah is, is can you get it on prime amazon prime? uh i can get cod liver oil skate no, no. liver oil no you're going sold now Only sperm whale oil sperm whale oil anyway i feel like we're getting off track now um slightly slightly <clears throat> Yeah, so ceramic speed, their new lube, uh, it's it's a wax-based thing, so it dries to like um, proper dry-to-touch type lube, um, and that's sort of a, a key feature of it. By comparison, Silka just released a new lube today, uh, which is called, yes, Kaylee? Sperm whale oil. Uh, it's illegal, and you risk a $2,000 fine if you try to buy it. So ah, all right, there you top go. tip to our listeners, do not attempt to buy sperm whale oil for your chain. Stick with one of the other Many performance enhancers are illegal, though, Kaylee. <laughs> That's true. Maybe stick with the other ridiculously <laughs> overpriced lubes that we're talking about in this segment. Anyway, back to Silka. Yeah, so Silka just released a new uh, wet lube called Synergetic, uh, which is basically just an oil, uh, but it's a very fancy oil. And. Uh, before Silka had their current range of super secret wax lubes, they had NFS, which was um, a wet oil-based. Yeah, it was a, a wet oil-based lube. Um, and this new wet lube seems to just be a replacement for that. So 
uh, it's basically being pitched for people that ride in wet, crappy conditions. That's uh, where a, wa- a dry wax loop may not be the the best option. This is for those people. I think what annoys me most about the price is it doesn't seem like it's in line with like how much it must cost to make. Right? Isn't that the bike industry to a T? Yes, but it just it I don't know, it feels absurd. Like there's no way a, bo- a little tiny bottle of anything that they're putting in a bike lube costs enough money to charge me $45 or way more than that. Yeah, so I mean the Silka lube, this Silka lube is $25, the ceramic speed is $45, but relatively speaking, it's all very affordable when you compare it to Absolute Black's graphene lube at $150. Uh so, you know, we can thank them for raising the bar so high that everyone else is now affordable. Is gra- Well, and Kelly, have you have Kelly, have you ever researched the supplement market at all? That's very true. Like essential oils and that sort of thing, like like for the size of the bottle that you get for, you know, uh Dave, what would you say this stuff was like fifty bucks a bottle or forty five dollars a bottle? Forty five, yeah. Yeah. So in comparison, I mean, if you were to try to buy like I don't know, like that size bottle of lavender oil or something, that stuff is not inexpensive either. Yeah. So and that's I guess it's worth pointing out, like you know the the new UFO stuff. It's not really the same as say like what Squirt or Smooth are selling for you know ten fifteen dollars a bottle. Um, you know, they're using, uh, you know, it's a wax lube that Squirt's selling, but they're using a lot of, um, like, slack wax, which is kind of like the the byproduct or the off-product of, you know, pure paraffin wax. Um, so it's kind of like the the junk wax. Um, whereas, you know, the the guys like UFO, they're starting with, like, a food-grade paraffin wax and, and sort of adding their friction modifiers to that. So it's just a, it's a much more expensive raw ingredient. Um, whether that adds up to the price they're asking debatable but you know you're also surely paying a lot for the r&d that's gone into it and for the brand name all right well i know a lot of people may not care too much about the idea of reducing friction in their drivetrain because i mean a lot of people are probably thinking like you know chains work pretty well already anyway like how much how much how much friction can these things actually save so if you were to just take an average drivetrain with average lube you know a lot of people a lot of people use like you know dumont tech or something like that how, how much can you actually save in terms of friction, but maybe more importantly, how, can, how much can you potentially save in terms of component wear? So in terms of friction, uh, in a perfectly clean lab, the, the differences aren't massive. Um, like the worst loop sits at about um, an, eight watt, an eight watt loss uh, when pedaling at 250 RPM. Um, sorry. The, the worst loops sit at about an 8-watt loss uh, at 250 watts uh, at 90 RPM. And then uh, the best loops are down around the 3-watt loss mark. So there's a 5-watt difference, which is quite big. But where things get really different is once you add grit into the equation. So, you know, once you've ridden the bike for 40, 50 kilometers or you picked up some road dust or you've picked up some dirt on the trail or wherever you're riding, um, those differences extrapolate out. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that it's, it's progressive with power. So the more power you put out, the, the larger, the, the watt differences are, um, and they're not, they're not at all linear. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's possible to between, you know, really bad oil based lube versus one of these newer wax based lubes that you could be losing in excess of 15 watts once things get dirty. Uh, this internet suggests jojoba oil as a replacement for sperm well oil 
just to return to really the, the main topic that we wanted to discuss today. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but it's $35 a bottle, so you're probably better off just paying for whatever expensive lube you're talking about. I feel like this is the perfect time to return back to our old Zip NSW sound effect. Wow. <laughs> 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 Uh, just to provide some subjective data to back all this up, uh, I do use an immersion wax uh, setup for my bikes, uh, road and mountain bikes. And on a trip that I made to Moab several weeks ago, uh, I went out there with a couple of buddies and we all drove separately, just to be clear. Um, uh, at the end of that weekend, actually at the end of this one particular ride, uh, everyone else's drivetrain sounded pretty horrible, I would say, with all that Moab grit and you know, whatever lubes that they had on there. And my drivetrain still felt new, actually. And it was quiet. And it didn't really sound like I was rubbing my drivetrain components into paste. So uh, so in case you do think some of these lubes are expensive, keep in mind that a cassette is way, way more expensive. So just keep that in mind. So speaking of cassettes, one of our Velo Club members brought up an interesting hack that he stumbled upon on a, uh, on a Swedish website. Uh, basically, instead of just tossing out a cassette when the sprockets are too worn to hold on to a chain properly, the idea here is to reprofile the teeth with a Dremel tool so that the chain once again has properly shaped circular seats in the sprocket so it doesn't skip anymore. So at first I found this idea completely nuts, but then I started actually kind of wondering if this might be a not completely terrible way to extend the life of your cassette. Uh, especially when you have cassettes that are not only expensive, but now potentially getting really hard to find at the moment. This sounds like an idea I would have come up with. Like, very ill-advised, somewhat sketchy, <laughs> probably not going to work. However, I, if I remember correctly, I believe there's a Leonard Zinn column out about this. In fact, I may have edited it back in the day when I was... Le oh, of course there is. This is an, another reason why we love Leonard. When I Leonard. was Leonard's editor uh, years ago at Vela News. I, 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 I feel like I'm remembering this, but I could be misremembering it. But anyway. so uh, how, uh, Yeah, yeah. How exactly I've seen would you referenced for this as well. Yeah, how exactly would you would you do this? Like, you just sort of take the the fins off, basically? Well, no. See, here, here's the deal. So, you know, essentially, you know, you have circular rollers on a chain, Right, and they are supposed to seat in essentially a kind of semicircular cutout in every sprocket, right? And the issue that you have when things start to wear is, you know, those semicircular seats in the sprocket become kind of elongated, and then under under power, the chain sort of wants to kind of like ride up onto the outside of the sprocket, which is where you, where you get that skipping from under power on a really badly worn drivetrain. So what you are supposed to do here is you're basically remachining in that semicircular profile into the sprocket. So while the, you know, while every individual tooth will be narrower left to right, like the thick, like, you know, basically if you look at it as a sort of like a triangle, basically the base of the triangle is just not going to be as wide. But if the chain still sees a semicircular profile at the face of every tooth, then Theoretically, the chain is still going to be all happy and it's not going to want to ride up on the sprockets. I mean, the issue at that point is I don't really know how well these things will still shift. Um, at some point, you were just going to run out of material. Um, but, I mean, 
I suppose it could be a way to eke out a few hundred more kilometers out of a cassette if you were really kind of desperate. I mean, the person who originated this 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 Swedish post, I mean, they were saying that you know they've kind of gotten the technique down where they can essentially reprofile a worn cassette in about half an hour, and potentially without even taking it off the wheel, which is kind of a neat trick. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't really know how I feel about this. I mean, it sounds like it could work. And it sounds like certainly people have tried it with pretty good success, but I do just wonder how well the thing will still shift. Mm. In yeah, so basically, um, put another way, you you want the cassette cog should match the pitch of the chain, and what you're effectively doing is shifting how the cassette cog matches the pitch of the chain. So you're just keeping that dimension the same, right, from tooth to tooth. Um, yeah, I. I'm not a fan of this. It sounds like a lot of work for something that could just, you know, ruin your shifting. I think I think it'll work, but I just I just don't see it as a as a hack worth spending time on, personally. But then again, I'm also not wearing through five hundred dollar cassettes, so maybe I'm the wrong person for this. Kelly, you look oddly intrigued with this idea. Though. Uh I mean, I would never actually go do it. <laughs> because it sounds you might you might ask zach to do it yeah he would just laugh at me and be like you should buy a new cassette you cheap bastard that's what he would say he would say that he would say uh no i I think it's an interesting idea particularly yeah like for these super expensive you know we've got these crazy expensive mountain bike cassettes now we've got you know some of the some of the high end sort of like red dome cassettes and things like that that are all quite expensive I can see it making sense, you know, if you've got one of those and and a you just can't get another cassette because we are running into, you know, issues finding uh, getting actual equipment at this point. Uh, it's too bad Zach isn't here because he has plenty of examples of that of like trying to find a chain and not be able to find one because there's just no availability. So if there's, you know, if if, if that's if that's an issue, then you maybe get a couple hundred more kilometers out of it. But yeah, to me, it's. I don't know. I, I, I like I kind of like anything involving a Dremel or a drill because it like harkens back to the old drillium days where we just stuck holes in everything and made everything lighter and oh, it was yes. awesome. I mean I I remember oh, yes. spending like I spent so much time trying to get my mountain bike lighter in nineteen ninety nine that I was dremeling like seat post collars and all sorts of dumb things to the point where my seat post co- seat post collar snapped in the middle of a race because I dremeled it down too far. So I'm kind of of that era and and like that sort of thing and like that kind of creativity. But I think in this particular case, given the fact that shifting would probably suffer, given the fact that it would take a lot of time, I don't think I would do it personally. Yeah. So personally, the way I'm looking at this is it might have made more sense with older eight and nine speaker sets where the tooth itself was actually wider and had more material to it. But now that we're in the like the 11 and 12 speed, even 13 speed world, where each tooth, like the, the actual width of the steel being used, is so so slim, so um, you know, there's so little material there that I can't help but think that taking a Dremel to these things is just asking for fatigue and failure, and yeah, and then the shifting ramps as well are so much more advanced than they used to be as well, and so much more precise that feel like you're just going to be missing what those shifting ramps are designed to do so and i'm not sold i'm sure there are people out there that have done this with and claim success but meh 
Yeah, I mean, like, I've used super, super cheap cassettes before, just, you know, when you're testing a cheap bike or whatever, and, and that's definitely that's definitely sort of the most obvious performance downgrade when you go to a cheaper uh, drivetrain, right? You know, a, a super cheap, like a, like a a couple years ago, like a, ram, a, a SRAM rival drivetrain, for example, uh, the actual shift mechanism feels pretty much the same, at least when it's new. The derailleur functions pretty much the same, at least when it's new. But what you could feel was just like that extra sort of split second before the chain would get picked up. And I think that's exactly what you would run into in this particular case. So, you know, if you want to be real cheap, I say go for it. Because as Dave said, I, I think it would probably work. Like it makes sense sort of from a physics perspective. Uh, but it, I, just don't, I don't see a whole lot of reason to, to really give it a go. If you want to be real cheap, buy some food grade paraffin wax from a wholesale supplier and melt your chain into that and you'll be way ahead financially than <laughs> what you what you'll be spending on dremel bits for to make this hack happen yep that is true i mean like a little bottle of mineral spirits doesn't really cost very much money at all and and i don't know about you dave but i got my my used crock pot at the thrift store for the price tag is still on it actually it's four dollars and fifty cents <laughs> Ooh, that beats the 15 australian i paid for mine Ooh, indeed indeed we were talking about drilling holes and things so years and years ago let's see this would have been Roughly 23 years ago, Cannondale used to have a huge, had a huge recall on aluminum rigid mountain bike forks. And I was in the habit at the time of cutting them off and making bottle openers That's out of them. <laughs> and I don't know if you can see this, but the date is still on there. 1997. Yep. Peak drillium times. Yep. We're leaving this in the podcast because I'm just going to point out that it's amazing that James just has this to hand. <laughs> it's just sitting right here. Like he, well, he didn't even leave. He just has like old. I don't. I don't know why this is sitting on my bench. He doesn't think, even well, drink beer, and he has a bottle opener to hand. He just. I do. I do. Yeah. I do. I do drink Mexican cokes, and oh, that does right. require a bottle opener. Yeah. And this bottle opener. Uh, this bottle opener I actually had made for uh, one of my best friends in college, and I was supposed to. I was supposed to kind of like refurb it because the, the, the part that opens up the top had kind of like gotten misshapen somehow. Um, and clearly I never got never got around to getting it back to her. So, Sandy, I'm sorry. I still have your bottle opener. Anyway. What's next? Back to tech. All right. What I really want to talk about today, however, since we're talking about metal now, is we're going to talk about Magnesium. Because magnesium is, I mean, in industry, uh, magnesium is actually one of the most common light structural metals out there. Um, and it's always been really tempting in the bike industry to be used as a frame material because of that. I mean, it's, it's even lighter than aluminum, or it's less dense than aluminum, I should say. It has a nearly identical stiffness to weight ratio overall, but it's supposedly a little bit stronger. It's also easier to machine. It requires less energy to process and manufacture. It's only slightly, uh, and it's only slightly more expensive than aluminum too. So the promise has always been that you can get performance that is kind of approaching carbon fiber, but at a cost that's more, you know, closer to aluminum. You know, for various reasons though, I mean, previous attempts at using magnesium have not worked very well. I mean, way back in the day, you know, this company Kirk Precision tried to do cast magnesium frames, which did not go well. Uh, Pinarello did some magnesium frames. There was a company here in Colorado called Paquetta. They were playing with magnesium for a while. Um, but anyway, for various reasons, it just hasn't really worked out. But now we have this new company called Vast, V-A-A-S-T. And I did confirm it is Vast and not Vast. 
So I don't really know why they has two A's in there. Lost. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Vast has built their entire brand around this new, you know, their, this this alloy is called Super Magnesium, of course, from Vast's sister company, Allite. Uh, and it's turning out to be pretty interesting stuff. I mean, I dialed up company president Bruno Meyer a few days ago to get some of the details on this alloy. Uh, so let's listen to what he had to say about Allite Super Magnesium, and then let's discuss it on the other side. Bruno, thanks for taking the time to be on Nerd Alert today. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, Bruno, you are the president of All Light. Uh, you are uh, should be very, very well familiar with the ins and outs of this material at this point. Um, for those of you who are not familiar, I mean, uh, you know, magnesium is not necessarily a new material overall to the bicycle industry. I mean, companies have tried using magnesium before. Why is magnesium appealing? relative to more traditional metals like you know aluminum titanium or steel so what what i would say is to to start there's a weight benefit associated with magnesium that, that's first and foremost um, when you compare uh, magnesium alloys to aluminum there's probably a 30 percent uh, weight savings uh, between the materials uh, as you look at uh, titanium uh, you know you're, you're getting upwards of a 50 percent uh, lower weight uh, and then with steel, you know, 60 to 75% less weight uh, with a similar frame. And so you've got a weight advantage, uh, which obviously cyclists are looking for, uh, on, uh, you know, are always looking for. Uh, but the other benefits that I think are truly important are uh, the damping uh, capabilities of magnesium alloys. So uh, the shock absorption that you get from the frame itself or components uh, is going to make for a more enjoyable ride for the end user. Um, and then finally, uh, I think one of the things that that we're most excited about are the the, the green aspects of utilizing magnesium. Uh, so that there, there's kind of a, a complete story with mag that uh, we think will resonate uh, in in today's market. Cool. So Bruno, on on the surface, then I mean, I, I was a materials guy in grad school. I mean. Looking at it straight from a materials property standpoint, there's a lot of reasons why magnesium makes an awful lot of sense compared to those other traditional metals, um, which is why I think a lot of companies have wanted to use magnesium in the past. Now, you know, companies may remember, well, sorry. Now, some customers who have been around for a while or some listeners who have been around for a while, they, they might remember, you know, Kirk magnesium from way, way back in the day. I think that was a cast magnesium frame. Um, you know, Pinarello played around with magnesium on the prints for a while. Um, you know, Easton tried using magnesium for a line of components and, and all for those same reasons. I mean, like you said, it's, it, it's, it's a lighter metal. Um, it, it's, it, it's, if I remember correctly, it's stiffer than aluminum as well, right? Um, so, I mean, in terms of, in terms of bicycle performance, I mean, those two aspects alone make it really appealing. None of those previous attempts at using magnesium did very well though. So, you know, it, from your perspective, why didn't it go well before and how is the, uh, the, I guess they call it, you're calling it the super magnesium alloy that you're using now. I mean, how is that different than so, what people have used before? Yeah. So the, the, the challenges in the past have in many respects been related to, uh, whether it's it's corrosion or oxidation uh, of the material itself, and so the the all light super mag is manufactured with rare earth elements that that does a couple of things. But 
but one of the main benefits is it reduces the corrosive properties of magnesium alloy. The, the secondary piece of what has changed over the last you know, 15, 20 years is, is that coatings um, have become uh, much more advanced. And, and so a combination of uh, being able to reduce the, the uh, impact of corrosion uh, as well as providing uh, basically very uh, the, the, the coatings that we're using are, are part of like a, a, an electrolytic process. And so it, it doesn't add any additional weight to the frame, um, but it does basically embed itself into the material almost like a, uh, a nanotechnology. Uh, and that allows us to protect the frame from scratches or other things. So th there's kind of two aspects of what we're doing today that make our material more appropriate and, and, and easier to utilize when it comes to uh, bicycle products. And so the, the challenges that, that previous companies had, I think we've addressed those uh, in those two areas specifically. So before, was the, was the surface treatment kind of more akin to just kind of like a special paint, whereas now it sounds like it's more akin to aluminum and how that's anodized, right? Well, it's, it's, it's similar to that. I, I didn't want to get into the technical pieces of it, but uh, the, the, uh, it's a plasma, plasma electrolytic oxidation process. And so basically the entire frame is coated inside and out, uh, and the, the process coats itself deep into the material. And so even if you were to chip the paint away and scratch the frame, you're still going to not break the barrier created by, uh, PEO, by a PEO coating. And so th these coatings are currently being used in automotive. Uh, they're being used in military applications. And so that's, that's what gives us the confidence of being able to put out a frame that we know uh, is going to be uh, a, a really good quality product for many, many years for the user. And so we, we don't have the same concerns that I think really hit Pinarello or uh, I think Merida for a period of time uh, and their past involvement with magnesium. Plasma electrolytic oxidation treatments that you're talking about. I mean, some people may not have heard about PEO, but they may have heard of other things like Terranite, for example, which is a popular surface treatment that has been used for a lot of rims and rim brakes, uh, for example. And then also some frames are treated with that as well. Um, so it, in that context, I think a lot of people who have used those wheels in particular that have that sort of coating are probably used to the fact that they are really super, super durable. So that, that's really encouraging to hear. Correct, James. And in fact, Karenite is a wonderful example of a company using a PEO process. Um, and, and so I think that that's, you know, Karenite is one of our partners that we utilize. Um, but, but it really does allow for protection of, of magnesium. And so it's, it's used in other areas of the bike industry currently, specifically like on suspension linkages. Uh, and I know those suspension linkages are currently being treated with, with PEO, um, as well as in some cases, uh, fork crown or fork lowers. Um, we're seeing the use of PEO to protect uh, from corrosion uh, today. Cool. You know, all of this stuff sounds great on paper in terms of, you know, how it is, again, just from material properties, but from a structural perspective, I mean, bicycle frames and, you know, the performance of bicycle frames and components, I mean, all of that stuff is determined by a, you know, a lot more than just the material properties. I mean, shape is also really important, as we all know. And at least right now, I mean, the you, as, as far as I can tell, you have an, pretty much a, an exclusive partnership with uh, a company called Vast to make a line of magnesium bikes using this all light uh, alloy. 
and it seems like at least right now, I, I, I know in the initial presentations that you all first had when All Light first hit the market, uh, you, you were showing how this material can be formed in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, and this frame does use TIG welded tubes. Uh, it has some, uh, I think, some extrusions and forgings as well. Is that correct? That is correct. And and, and so the 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 BB node uh, is like specifically on the A1, for instance, is a a forged uh, BB node. Uh, the dropouts are forged, uh, but we are using TIG welding on the on the main frames. The shaping of the of the initial tubing, I would say, is, is minimal. Uh, but but is substantial enough to provide that that stiffness uh, and and weight management. Um, but I, I think that as we look at the long term uh, aspects or or opportunities with all light super mag, the elongation uh, aspect of our material allows us to move towards more hydroforming uh, and really getting into some unique. T- tube shapes. And we currently have uh, those projects in development. And I would expect that within the next uh, year to two years that we'll have uh, some much more unique uh, frames available for the market. So in terms of the formability of this stuff, I mean, are there, is this stuff as good as or better than or maybe not as good as some other materials that people are used to? I mean, you were talking about hydroforming and some of the other formability uh, and elongation, I guess, you know, to put in layman's term, it's sort of, it's sort of just the ability to, to, to stretch a material without breaking it, essentially. Um, you know, what is, you know, what are we looking at moving forward then? I mean, are we going to be, you know, you said there are a lot of things in development. Um, this vast frame is pretty neat, but like you, as you said, the, the, the the tube shaping that's on this frame is pretty minimal for sure. Um, so in a couple of years time, one or two years, I mean, are we going to see then a lot more elaborate shapes coming out on frames that are built with this stuff? That is my expectation, James. And and look, the, the working with the material and, and a new material uh, clearly has its challenges and, and, and some development will take time. But as I said, some of that process is already in the works today. And so I do anticipate within the next two years that uh, that our shape, fr- our, our frame shapes become much more unique and dynamic, uh, allowing us to, you know, put uh, power transfer in the right places, even remove additional weight. Uh, and, and I believe that within the next year, a year and a half, we'll see a, a sub 1,000 gram uh, magnesium frame uh, with some some pretty uh, arrow shaped tubing. Oh, interesting. That could be really cool. Um, I, I want to ask a little bit more about the durability of this stuff. And we touched on. Um, kind of previous attempts in using magnesium and how some of those failed in terms of, you know, how corrosive or how, how those materials basically just fell apart when they got exposed to water in particular. So this, this PEO treatment that you subject all of these tubes to, it, it is, in my experience, you know, in other, in other products that use something similar anyway, it is very resistant to, you know, kind of scratching and, and, and just sort of general abrasion. What about denting though? Like, Aluminum frames, especially in mountain bike and, and gravel applications, I mean, they are going to be more prone to, to impact from crashes and that sort of thing. If you dent an all-light magnesium frame, what is the status of that coating at that point? So the coating itself is embedded into the material. And so it, it, it shouldn't necessarily have an impact on the coating itself. Uh, clearly, the, the, the structure of the tube might be another question. But uh, the, the benefits I, that I look at with the magnesium is, is that it's going to be able to take uh, a, a more punishment from the rider 
Uh, and so it, it, it's got the increased damping. So I, I think you're gonna have less damage when you look at it compared to an aluminum frame, but ultimately the PEO coating should not, uh, should not be damaged through a, a for, for instance, a frame dent. Okay, cool, that's good to hear. Um, I mean, so is it likely in addition to seeing more elaborate shaping in this material moving forward, I mean, are we gonna see more brands using this stuff? Have you talked to anyone else who, who has expressed interest in using all light in their frames? Uh, we, we are uh, looking at it uh, from an OEM standpoint. Uh, we're talking to a number of different brands in the market today, uh, not only in regards to frames, but in suspension linkages. Uh, we're working uh, with a couple companies on uh, crank arms and spiders. Um, and, and so I think that those will be the areas you see us focus on initially. Uh, I do expect that we'll uh, also be bringing to market uh, in the next year uh, rims and wheel sets that uh, will, uh, you know, all, all offer an alternative to a maybe a more expensive carbon wheel set, but still offer some uh, amazing weight benefits. And then the ride quality with the, the shock absorption, the damping uh, will provide a more comfortable ride for the rider themselves. Oh, interesting. I, I actually hadn't even brought up the rim thing yet because um, I have ridden some magnesium wheels in the past. I guess it's been quite a long time now. I guess American Classic is the one that comes to mind right away. Um, you, know, you had talked earlier about how magnesium as a material is more uh, more capable of damping vibration than aluminum. And so I, I, have, a, I have had this vast A1 gravel bike here for uh, far, far too long. Uh, Joey, I know the marketing manager for for uh for vast i know is on this call and and i know that he's been kind of on me to finish this so i apologize joey this has been taking forever um but one of the things i have noticed about this frame is that it does ride differently i mean it does i mean that that super damped rod quality is something that i noticed right away um and then talking with other people i know who uh, i guess other readers and listeners who have ridden these bikes or who own these bikes they've they've attested the same thing um so in in a rim or in a frame or you know, whatever component that you might be using this material and that might affect the ride quality, you know, where does that extra damping come from? How does that happen? Well, it, it's naturally inherent in uh, magnesium itself. And so the, it's based on the molecule structures that exist within uh, magnesium. And I can't, uh, it, it's more like a hexagonal shape uh, at the molecule level. And so what it allows is for a transfer of energy through uh, the material itself where you get maybe more of a stiff or uh, pounding response from something made with aluminum, for instance. And so it, it's all based on the molecular structure of uh, magnesium cells. <laughs> that's a, that's kind of a, a unique answer, but that, that's the, where the additional damping comes from. Fair enough. We're not going to go into crystal structure here. I don't, I don't yeah. want to bring up any any bad memories from grad school. Um, what, one thing I, I want to ask you about, um, you know, one one symbol that I noticed on this vast uh, test bike that I have, it, it, it basically references kind of sustainability and recyclability, which is something that, you know, certainly that we've been wanting to talk about more here at Cycling Tips and something that we're going to talk about more moving forward. Um, and, you know, there is a lot more attention to that sort of thing in general. Um, you know, certainly in industries outside of cycling, there has been a lot of attention paid to, you know, being eco-friendly and sustainability, you know, kind of whether companies are kind of doing the right thing, so to speak. Um, and, you know, carbon fiber has a bad rap in the sense that, you know, certainly thermoset carbon fiber products are really difficult to, to make, uh, 
are really difficult to recycle, although a lot of them can be repaired pretty easily, which is a good thing. Um, aluminum and titanium, or, well, I should say titanium certainly, you know, maybe doesn't rank very high on that scale either. I mean, although, although it's super durable, it is a pretty rare material, uh, and certainly there's a, a fair bit of energy that that's required in, in I guess, uh, in mining this stuff. But where does magnesium stand on that scale relative to aluminum? So the, the, the key areas that I would say where magnesium is more sustainable than aluminum is, is that, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's, the, it's the ninth most sustainable or uh, most available abundant uh, element on the planet today. In fact, magnesium can be produced uh, from seawater. Um, now, ours, ours is mined. Um, but the, the mining aspect or the production of magnesium is uh, more sustainable. There are new processes being developed for smelting uh, that uh, reduce the environmental impact. Uh, and then the key piece is the energy required to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, run production. For instance, extrusion tubings. The magnesium runs through at lower temperatures. Uh, the, 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 the energy required to manipulate magnesium is less than what it takes to manipulate, uh, aluminum. And so <laughs> there is where the, the, a lot of the, the, the green aspects of magnesium come into play. The other aspect is, is that magnesium is hundred percent recyclable. And so, you know, we, we can take that magnesium frame and recycle it back into, uh, either a new magnesium frame, uh, or another type of product uh, once we, you know, put it through the the smelting process again. So how do you do that though? Like with with aluminum, uh, you know, with a lot of light metals in general, with, with aluminum and kind of you know nicer steel alloys, that sort of thing. <clears throat> I mean, so much of the so much of the performance that you get out of that stuff lies in, you know, how how carefully controlled the alloying elements are. I mean, how how can you maintain that sort of control? in a recycled magnesium product though. And so the, the, the process that we use, we have a, uh, a proprietary process through the smelting and uh, through, through our smelting process that we've put in place. And what it allows us to do is remove impurities uh, throughout that process. And so that we're able to maintain a very specific uh, grain structure, material composition, uh, and so the, the group of material scientists that we have on board, uh, you know, who's part of our management team, and then we also have a development relationship with Xi'an Jiaotong University uh, in China, where they continue to refine those processes to uh, make them more effective at delivering the purest uh, composition that, that we can develop. And so today, for us to go back and, re and, and redo uh, a frame, for instance, um, would just require us putting it through the process again and using their processes to uh, remove any uh, of the impurities that were created through uh, the, any additional materials that, that showed up. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but uh, it, it comes down to the proprietary manufacturing processes that we've developed uh, with our team of scientists and engineers in-house. So essentially what you're saying then is, in theory, if someone, if you wanted to make another magnesium product out of recycled magnesium. In theory, you wouldn't just have to start only with all light magnesium alloy. You could theoretically have a giant vat of a bunch of all light frames and scrap together with like a bunch of rock shocks and fox lowers or something. 
Well, there, there's a piece of that. Now, a lot of our material composition, you know, comes from specific additives that we put in there. The rare earth uh, materials, uh, we, we add a certain percentage of whether it's aluminum or zinc. And so it, it's a matter of getting that right mix uh, to start uh, and then refining it from there by removing the impurities. And so uh, there is a way for them to do that, but it, it's, it, it's labor intensive. Uh, but it, it wouldn't be just as simple as dumping all this magnesium back into a single vat and, and producing uh, new frames. Okay. But either way, I mean, it sounds like you're saying that, you know, essentially what you're saying is, you know, it takes less energy to produce an all light magnesium frame than it would a, a native aluminum frame then. And it also that it requires less energy to produce a recycled product than it would for some other metal then, Correct. Correct. Do you have any sense as to what the, the difference in scale is? Like how much, how much less energy is required to make a, a new magnesium frame than relative to aluminum? I, I can't, uh, I couldn't answer that question today. Uh, I'm sure that we can, we can pull together some, some facts and figures for you. Uh, but the, there, there, it comes down to the amount of energy used uh, during the production process. But I, I don't have those details. Okay, fair enough. Um, so where does what does the future hold for all light magnesium and I guess you know magnesium in the bicycle industry in general? Um, you know, it, can you say whether we are looking at a pretty big change in a bigger portion of the industry in some sort of near time frame? Then I, I obviously think so. I, I think that as we look at uh, the the products that are available. Um, you know, clearly a, a fourth material, uh, if, if I were to say carbon fiber, uh, steel and aluminum are the main, the main materials being used today. Uh, I think that there's demand for a higher performing material that maybe doesn't come with the cost associated with carbon. Uh, and then you've got the environmentally sustainable uh, aspects of magnesium, which I think, frankly, make it a little bit more appealing uh, than carbon product today. Uh, not only that, with but you but you're looking at the performance benefits of the shock absorption, uh, the lightweight. As I mentioned earlier, I think that within the next uh, 18 months, we'll we'll probably have a road frame that is sub a thousand grams. Um, and, and so I think all those combined uh, gives us an advantage in the marketplace and, and provides us with a unique opportunity to uh, expand use of another material uh, in the category. Well, considering what this frame that I have rides like and considering also the fact that this bike, all things considered, is really not very expensive either. I guess it's surprisingly reasonable. <clears throat> uh, I, I'm certainly in favor of, of moving the of moving things in that direction of getting of, you know things getting less expensive and better. So that that's good to hear. Cool. Well, Bruno, thanks again very much for your time, and we're looking forward to seeing what happens with this stuff. Thanks again. James, thank you. All right, so um, I actually just finished up my long-term review of Vast's A1 gravel bike. You can check that out on the site. Uh, and while I had some complaints about the design of the bike itself, the material actually seemed, honestly, it seems super cool. Um, I mean, the frame is pretty light at about 1,200 grams. Uh, the ride quality legitimately is really kind of like strangely damped and quiet. Um, and given how simple the tube shaping is, I mean, it seems like there's an awful lot of potential here once Vast or whoever else decides to use this tubing kind of sorts out the geometry and introduces some hydroforming, which I know is possible. Um, so given that we are all pretty big fans of nice aluminum bikes here and you know metal bikes in general, really, I mean, does it seem like we might actually finally have another frame material to choose from here? Because, I mean, it's nice having 
carbon, aluminum, steel, and titanium to choose from. But I mean, magnesium sounds like it could be pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like the the sort of the consumer base is kind of ready for more metal bikes too. You know, like just in general, it feels like lots. I mean, we've talked about this on this podcast numerous times. That you know, we all own metal bikes, right? And the fact that sort of there there are pieces of the industry that are sort of swinging back that direction away from the away from the carbon fiber you know we're gonna we're gonna throw this bike out after a couple years because you know it's basically it's very difficult to recycle and whoever bought it is going to want the next big thing and more bikes that sort of last longer i mean this goes back to our conversation around sustainability in the last episode i i think that there's room for this uh i haven't ridden a magnesium bike in like 10 years so i'm super intrigued to get on one just see what it's like I mean, Kaylee, you probably were on a Paquetta, I'm guessing. I'm trying to remember what the last one I was on was. It might I mean, have there been. There weren't really that many options. Yeah, it might have been a Paquetta that was that I was on. I've ridden a Paquetta before. I'm trying to remember, trying to remember whether, whether that was the last one that I've that I've ridden. But yeah, I mean, like the last time they were around, right, was was coming up on ten years ago. It was like would have been my first or second year at working at Villeneuve. So yeah, it was it was a long time ago. Yeah, no, Kaylee's 100% right. There is absolutely a shift back to metal bikes from a consumer point of view. Um, you know, and the brands that are offering really nice aluminium frames are, are selling through them amazingly. Um, you know, steel, titanium, uh, all those custom builders, uh, you know, many, or not all, but many of them are doing great business at the moment. Uh, and there are a lot to choose from. Um, but James, I'm, I'm keen with this material. I'm keen to understand what are the downsides might catch on fire uh well yeah so there is this kind of like myth that it's going to catch on fire because you know we most of us have done the little experiments in school at some point where you take like this little strip of magnesium and light it on fire you know burns really hot and that sort of thing and you know magnesium when you do kind of shave it down into little little shavings or like powder or something like that like yes it will definitely ignite and it'll burn real hot um but when you have it in sort of like a bulk form like this i mean you know, there was some someone commented uh, on on the article more in jest than anything about how <clears throat> about how you know you could take a you know if if Vast made a road frame and then like you laid it down to crit like you just sort of like watch it scraping across the pavement and just lighting everything on fire just setting off sparks everywhere but like that doesn't really that doesn't really happen um, so I mean I did ask Vast about this and you know supposedly the way that this alloy is formulated and everything you know if you were to just keep heating it up what would end up happen what would end up happening is the whole thing would melt before it caught on fire um which is kind of what you normally expect a metal to do um but yes i mean if you were stuck in the wilderness somewhere and you had a metal file and a lighter or something like that you could potentially start a fire and keep yourself warm at night did you try so could the next i did not try could the next generation scott spark be made out of this material Oh wow! Terrible. No, wow. minus five points. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Anyway, I mean, so so this frame was pretty cool. I mean, one thing I really liked about it, like I said, I mean, the ride quality was super super damped. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of actual flex in the frame, really. Just kind of how they had all the tubes shaped and how they had the the frame geometry laid out. Um, and like I said, the shaping on this thing was very, very minimum. Like there was like a little bit of flare to the to the down tube at the head tube junction, so like you had a little more strength there, and a little bit of curve and stuff here. But I mean, I, I was kind of thinking more like, what could a magnesium frame be like if it was made like. You know, for example, like a specialized Alley Sprint with like that super, super cool hollow 
like clamshell bottom bracket assembly and like the way they do that hydroformed head tube setup. Uh, I mean, th- this stuff can be welded, it can be machined, it can be forged. I mean, it can be made and formed into into you know all sorts of different ways, just like aluminum can be. Um, and the fact that it could potentially be a little bit lighter um, and offer that really interesting ride quality. I mean, I, I'm almost kind of bummed that Vast came out with something that was so conservative initially because it doesn't seem like it really highlighted what this material could do. Although, I mean, it could be that they just didn't have enough money yeah. to really. I mean, that's the thing. Know. Like the bike, like the new, um, the the Smart World Alay. Like there are that's a huge investment to have those pieces made to have the hydroform, you know, head tubes and bottom bracket pieces made. That's just it's it's immense what those companies spend on having those molds created and all that. So um, I think it is just an investment. You know, it's they can't just jump in with a multi million dollar investment in making these things. So perhaps this is a proof of concept for now so i personally really like the idea as well of you know in particular a magnesium uh a magnesium hardtail frame because you know a lot of people like hardtails for racing and certainly for like you know kind of like lighter trail duty um but if you really want to keep things light carbon fiber is still pretty expensive and you know not everyone is comfortable with taking a carbon fiber frame and just taking it out on the trail um but if vast or whoever is able to make a good magnesium hardtail frame with proper modern geometry that is you know say somewhere around the weight of you know maybe even a little bit lighter than a good aluminum frame and offer that really cool ride quality i mean i think vast is really maybe going to be onto something here yeah i mean i just bought an aluminum hardtail and it was like the last specialized chisel in existence because they can't keep them in stock right now which gets back to what we were saying before it's like bikes in this price it, well in the chisels price range which is quite cheap uh, but the sort of aluminum bike super popular right now particularly given the pandemic particularly given all these people that are trying to get back on bikes because gyms are closed and people are sort of rediscovering cycling etc cetera, etc cetera. there's yeah the the, the, the like I, said, I literally i'm pretty sure i got the last one in my size in north america it's the one that i got or that i have coming i should say and so yeah if, if there is room for anybody to step in and say hey look we got this cool thing we have this 1200 gram hardtail frame if what you're saying james is true and that it damps that well that sounds like a perfect match for a hardtail anyway right not that really like road buzz is kind of the issue on a, on a hardtail but like any help you can get on a hardtail is appreciated uh i, I think that, that that sounds like a like a sweet solution to to the hardtail and hardtails are sweet i, I like i'm I, I haven't ridden a gravel bike in like three months because i've just had a hardtail and i've just been bopping around on that it's basically the same thing but way more fun turns out great <laughs> Weird, and we, we, we may or may not be investigating this topic in a little more depth, True. so stay tuned there to the YouTubes. Uh, moving on, though, so, I mean, Vasta did say that uh, they are working on the next generation of stuff already, so as far as frames go, so I am super eager to see where this goes, because I, I feel like this is not going to be like a really legitimately, no pun intended, I don't think this is going to be a flash in the pan. I think, I think this material <laughs> is going to be around for a while. Yes, I I'm just really disappointed that you didn't chip a piece of the frame off and catch on fire because that would have been great YouTube content. Would have been fantastic. It would have been great YouTube content. It would have been. Or I could have like I could have just like you know like lit a sparkler and just like held it next to the frame and rode it for a while. Something like <laughs> See that. See what happens. <laughs> you know, it could, it, the the YouTube video could have been you know can I light this bike on fire? We were talking recently about videos that uh, sort of types of videos that Shoddy Dave should start doing, and the Will It Blend series came came up 
Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Will It Blend. If you go to YouTube, just Google Will It Blend. There's a whole series of literally, it's just, they're, they're just selling a blender, and they just blend mm-hmm. random stuff. They're like, Will It Blend, mm-hmm. a you know China teapot. Will It Blend, my uncle's <laughs> shoe. You know, like whatever it is. We could do Will It Light on Fire. <laughs> What what just send stuff to Shoddy to try to catch on fire. That that's definitely huh. a great way to test bike parts, I think. Okay, I will keep that in mind and I will probably you know, with withhold that idea the next time <laughs> I request a test bike from someone. <laughs> hey, by the way, your bike might come back a little bit sand. Just a little bit. I hope that's okay. Yeah. I mean only if it fails. Or wait, if it passes, I don't know which way would be right. Oh, good question. <laughs> Oh, we, we may figure that out next time. Uh, hey, Vass, so by the way, I'm I'm really not really going to do this to your next text, test bike. Wink, wink. Not Definitely notch. not. All right. With that, I think it's time for Ask a Mechanic. I'm ready. Uh, we're going to go ahead and mute Kaylee's mic here at this point. All right. So once again, just want to remind you that we unfortunately do not have our pro mechanic, Zach Edwards here, but we do have myself and we have Dave. And for comic relief, we have Kaylee. Some kind of relief. I'm not sure it's comic. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to dive right into it. And I like this question. This is from Velo Club member, Jonathan Reinfeld. Jonathan would like to know, what is your best at-home hack? for truing wheels without a truing stand while attached to the bike or not. So Jonathan, I will say that a lot of times, well, back in the day when we had, when everyone had rim brake bikes, you could just use the brake pads as a visual guide. Um, And then now that we are all on disc brake bikes, what you can use, um, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll actually just sort of like hold the left seat stay in my hand and kind of just like use my thumb as a guide if I'm really trying to do just a quick and dirty job. But also what you can do is uh, you can use a zip tie and just zip tie, uh, zip, you know, tie it tight around your, ideally probably your seat stay, that would probably probably be easiest. And then just sort of clip it to a length where it's pretty close to the, the rim sidewall and then that will give you your visual guide. And that's probably the easiest way that I know of to do it. Yeah. Um... Instead of a thumb, you can also use like an Allen key or a screwdriver, uh, you know, braced against the frame as like a uh, a feeler gauge that stays consistent. Um, thumb works, but you know, it's a tool, so you may as well use it. Um, but yeah, the uh, with the zip tie, that's that's probably the obvious one. But if you leave it ever so slightly loose on the frame, you can actually pivot it to uh, adjust how close it sits to the rim once you clip it to length. So you can kind of. If you you know you can swing it at an angle and it'll it'll move further away or, or come closer as you as you cheer up the wheel. So that's uh... so either way, Jonathan, you have options and none of them are very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, another Velo Club member, Chris Young. We're going to stay on the topic of wheels and tires here. Chris, I feel like you've submitted a lot of questions lately. We're going to have to start charging you at some point here. So we're going to go ahead and answer this one anyway. Uh, Chris would like to know, how long should you keep a spare tube in your saddlebag before it becomes unusable? I think Chris is a Velo Club member, so we already charge him. Oh, that is true. That is true. So I guess this this is sort of just sort of him getting his perk, right? All right, Chris. So I I take that back. We're not going to cut you off from questions. So just go, go ahead and keep sending him in as long as you keep your membership current. <laughs> anyway, 
uh, with your spare tube. Uh, I mean, I have actually gotten this question a bunch from people. And what I always prefer to do with spare tubes in a saddlebag is I always make sure to wrap it up in a Ziploc bag first, and then ideally maybe with some talc tossed in there to, to make sure the whole thing stays dry. Um, and that's not so much to, I mean, it's partially to keep it dry. I mean, we don't really have to worry about that too much here in Colorado, but the big thing that you wanna prevent is something else in your saddlebag rubbing a hole in your tube. Because if you just take that tube and wrap it up and stuff it in there with a bunch of other stuff, especially like a, a mini tool or even some coins or, you know, whatever you might have in there, a CO2 cartridge. Over time, I mean, none of that stuff seems sharp, but over time, eventually, especially if your saddle pack isn't really tight, that stuff will eventually wear a hole in your tube, meaning that when you actually need the tube roadside, it will already have a hole in it. So uh, as far as I've been concerned, I mean, a tube will last pretty much indefinitely in that case. Um, but you know, if you live in a, in a, in a climate that's a lot more, a lot more humid or wetter in general, then that may, it may dry rot eventually. I would add that it's another reason to chuck some patches in your saddlebag because I have actually done that before. Pulled out a brand, what I thought was a brand new tube, stuck it in, realized it had a hole from sitting in there for too long. And then I just patched the hole and kept going. So then at least you always have a backup plan, which is good. Right, because Kaylee doesn't use saddlebags. He uses socks. Which is, and I believe that Kaylee does not bother to wrap up his tube in a bag. He just stuffs the tube in the sock. Correct. Why don't, so you, why again, don't you double sock it? You could put the tube in a sock and then put that in your sock with well, the other things. What I do now is actually it's a big, long <laughs> sock. So the, the, the uh, sharp tools go down at the very end of the toe of the sock. And then yeah. that gets rolled once. Oh. And then the oh, tube goes right. in. Interesting. And then it all gets stuck together, and then the back end of the sock wraps back up and around everything, and then gets stuck under my saddle. Gotcha. Well, I did that because I almost got stranded on the side of the road with a tube that had a hole in it from, from sitting there a little too long. But, I mean, honestly, <laughs> like it, it takes a while, generally, to wear a hole through the tube. So if you flat someone frequently, it's probably not something you really have to worry about. We tend to have pretty good roads around here. Uh, and I am part of Team Tube Inside, obviously, uh, which means that I don't flat that much. Because Team Tube Inside, we just don't flat. Because karma. Your logic hmm. is flawed. <laughs> Shh. Don't ruin it for me. Once again, don't listen to Kaylee. Jason Mitchell. He would like to know at what point does the energy loss from climbing a steep pitch become detrimental with today's lower pressure road tubeless setups? He says he always he said he is always wondering if the added squish slows down climbing, especially when it's steep. I would say it doesn't really matter if you're going uphill or downhill or on level ground. I mean, there is certainly a tipping point and there is a balance point as far as what your pressure should be in your tire. But for the most part, unless you are on totally like glass smooth pavement or track, it is still usually faster to run at a lower pressure than what we have all traditionally been running for years and years and years. Um, and it does seem squishier and it does seem like it might be slower, but there's an awful lot of data out there that shows that uh, it might feel slower, but it is actually faster. So I think uh, as long as you're not running too low a pressure and as long as you're running a pretty decent tire that doesn't have like a super stiff casing or something, then, you know, you should still be going uphill faster. Yeah, I, I don't have any specific numbers to put to this, but I do have an example, which is if you look at Nino Schurda and Kate Courtney, who ride for the, the Scott Schramm team in the mountain bike world, uh, you know, they're both at 
top top level of their sports. Um, Nino Schurter is now running a 2.4 inch mountain bike tire and around 20 psi ish. Um, and those guys, you know, he he's linked directly with um, the the Institute of Swiss Sport, and they do a ton of research around rolling resistance. And I'd say if that there is any concern about energy loss when climbing with low pressures, that they would not be running such wide tires. Uh, they absolutely would be at the forefront of the research in that space. And uh, yeah, if you, I'd say that is probably the, as clear of a sign as you need that that's where those guys have headed. Yeah. Because I dare say that uh, Nino Schroeder probably does not want to just be comfier and go slower. Exactly. Nope. nope. They test these things. So um, yeah, but I don't have any exact numbers to go with you and they wouldn't be publishing those numbers that is from their research but um yeah i can tell you that that's what the way the direction they've headed and they've done a bunch of research in the space in the space all right we're going to move on to tools dave because you're here and we need to talk about tools oh because if we don't talk about tools you're going to explode yeah so so we have another question from kevin budhue who has called in before he says that he's built, maintained, and still rides eight bikes. Two of them have cup and cone bearings, but the rest are cartridge bearing. And he's wondering if the cheaper bearing press kits that he sees on eBay work well enough because the cost over time of having a shop extract and press bearings in far exceeds the cost of the kit. But he doesn't want to harm the hub shell or misalign the bearings when pressing them in. What do you think here? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean the the cheap the cheap uh, bearing presses realistically. Uh, uh, yeah, I thought we muted his mic. Um, <laughs> Two yeah, by fours. So, yeah, I mean the the cheap uh, bearing kits that you find online, they're basically just a copy of the professional bearing kits, and as long as the surfaces are parallel, then you're fine. Um, they'll do the job just fine. Uh, the issue is is that you. You know, buying from a, a reputable tool manufacturer, uh, you can pretty much guarantee that the surfaces will be parallel. Whereas buying from a, a no-name Alibaba supplier, the you know you may not know until you get it and put a micrometer or a, a vernier caliper on onto the the faces of that said tool. Right, but chances are, for just ca- uh, you know occasional home use, it's more than it's, likely going to be good enough. It's probably going to be good enough. the The tricky part is is um those tools are often presses and the removal tools is a is a whole nother game and that's often where you'll you'll end up with uh, some significant expense um so yeah a good set of pin punches will go a long way and uh and a careful hand but uh yeah if you want proper removal tools hammer. then uh yeah hammer yeah a hammer and pin punches is really what most mechanics do use um but yeah if you want proper removal tools that take the bearing out square um that's a big expense. Okay. All right. Well, I think there you have your question. Uh, there you have your answer, Kevin. Have at it. David Rosenfeld would like to know if we believe that thread together bottom bracket assemblies for press fit shells represent a worthwhile improvement in reliability and creak prevention. Yes. We're all nodding. Absolutely. Yes. 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 David, if you are having issues with creaking or with bearing reliability, and you are still running a press fit bottom bracket shell then I would absolutely recommend trying a thread together setup, but you may also want to have someone look at your frame too, to make sure that you don't have an alignment issue. Yeah. Just, just further on this, a quick little rant. Um, I really don't like the brands that are sticking with press fit shells and then as stock supplying thread fit bottom brackets in them. 
Um, just just put a thread in your frame. You gotta save like nineteen dollars or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's no there's no weight savings to stick with the press fit system if you're then putting a heavy threaded bottom bracket into it, uh, and there's arguably no cost savings at manufacturing as well because that thread fit bottom bracket is kind of cost extra, substantially more expensive than a basic thread bottom bracket. So, yep. yeah. Dave, yep, Dave, you're making me a little bit sad because I, I actually just bought a Canyon aluminum gravel bike for myself. Yeah, and it has a press and it has a press fit 86 shell with a token thread together bottom bracket. Did it come with the token bottom bracket? It did. No, it I'm did. surprised. Yeah, how about that? Oh, at least it's a good bottom bracket. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, David, go ahead and buy the Thread Together bottom bracket. They are awesome. Highly recommended. Uh, we're going to move on to do a couple of drivetrain and brake questions and then a couple of very random questions, and then we're going to go ahead and sign off for the day because it's time to go bike riding again. All right, Velo Club member Ari Reinfeld would like to know if there is any way to remove a Truvative Isis crank set without buying a special tool. He has a regular square tapered bottom bracket tool. I'm assuming he means crank, crank arm puller. Can you modify this to work somehow? Yes, actually you can. Because back in the day when splined uh, spindles were first coming onto the market, there are actually steel, steel plugs that you can drop into that spindle so that you have a, an actual hard, firm surface to, uh, to press off against uh, for that bearing puller. Uh, funny story, way, way back in the day when I was working in a shop and you know these things were just coming onto the market and we didn't have that little handy plug tool yet. Uh, I tried using a bunch of coins mm-hmm. and it didn't work. Oh, sometimes it does. I was about to say, yeah, try it, coins. It, it, I, guess, <laughs> it did, I guess it depends it on your currency. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. it, it was very, it, it was clearly either not enough coins or I was using not quite the right ones because it basically just sort of punched through the coin. Uh, for a memory, an, an Aussie $2 coin, which is pretty expensive, um, <laughs> is, is the right size. But yeah, good luck getting that if you're in the US. So anyway, it is possible. But Ari, I mean, you probably, that's probably the sort of thing where if you do mess it up, you do stand a chance of wrecking the threads completely and wrecking the crank arm and or bottom bracket. And if you were to do that, you may end up with a setup that will stay on your bike forever unless you want to cut it off. So this is probably a situation where I would recommend not going the cheap route. Um, on the assumption that Ari doesn't mean a crank puller and actually does mean the bottom bracket tool, then no, you'll need to get a the correct spline to fit that said bottom bracket, um, which again is not a hugely expensive tool. I think they're like ten fifteen dollars, but um, yeah, that the the old Trevative bottom brackets did use a very different spline to most other bottom brackets on the market. Hmm. Okay. This one I want to answer just because I have it's a very intriguing name, and I don't know this person's real name, but they submitted the question under DJ Darwin. And I looked up this person a little bit, and it does look like they actually do have a contract, and they are actually are a professional DJ, it seems like. So very intriguing. Anyway, DJ Darwin has a lugged steel frame, and he got hit by a car at the left crank arm, which broke, Bending the frame at the bottom bracket over to the right by about half an inch, or roughly about you know 12, 13 millimeters or so, can it be cold set and realigned? Oh, this is kind of when I wish we were still recording at Vecchio's because this is a perfect, perfect question for Jim Potter. Yep. This is a little bit of a tricky one because we're not here to look at it. Um, but if you have a lugged steel frame, then chances are it's, I'm guessing it's a little bit older. Um, and usually a lot of those older steel frames, the tubing was pretty thick um, and the stuff was pretty malleable. 
in theory, you probably could realign the frame if you had a good shop with the right tools. Um, but it's, you know, you'd really have to be careful to make sure that you maintain the structural integrity of the frame to make sure nothing's cracked and like, you know, make sure those lug joints are still intact. Uh, a lot of times you can look at the paint and just look and see if there are any hairline cracks in the paint anywhere, because if you see those, that's a very good indication that your frame is probably cracked underneath as well. Um, in theory, your frame probably can be cold set and realigned, but you'd really want to find a good shop that has been in the business for a long time because most people who are in the bike mechanic business right now would have pretty much no idea what you're talking yeah. about. I, I would say rather than going to a shop, which there probably aren't too many shops around these days that, that are up to that, um, just take it to a, a local steel frame builder. Yeah, they're going to know exactly and, how far to push it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they'll have all the stuff on yeah. hand. And the older they are, the better they're going to be at this. <laughs> but also probably grumpy. Yeah. That's true. That's true. But they'll get it done. All right. Last question, and then we will wrap up here. David Savage, another Velo Club member. I like this question. Are there any pitfalls or problems to be aware of if you wanted to run a 27.2 millimeter seat post in a 31.6 millimeter seat tube with a shim or adapter to increase rear end comfort? Creaking. That's about it. There is a potential for creaking, but yeah, that really is it. I mean, if you are running this in a metal frame, then just, you know, a nice little coating of grease on both on all the surfaces should be no problem. Or if you're running this in a carbon frame, if you're, you know, just run it with a decent amount of carbon paste and make sure everything's covered. Um, I don't personally think that you're going to have any issues with this as long as you use a pretty nice shim. Uh, as long as it's well-sized and well-machined and then and the fit is good, I say have at it. I mean, I remember way back in the day when suspension seat posts were kind of the big thing in mountain biking. This would have been in, what, like the late 90s or so? Like, I remember, God, God knows how many USC suspension seat posts we sold back then. And USC only sold those in a 25.4 millimeter diameter. And then from there, you shimmed it to run on any other frame, which, yep. granted, back then, there was a lot more variability. You know, you had like, you know, 27.2 and 26.8, 26.4, 26.2, 28.6. It was just all over the place. But anyway, as long as you install the thing properly, uh, you shouldn't have any issues with creaking. And as long as you have a good seat post collar, you shouldn't have any issues with slipping either. Yeah. Um, but the key to making this sort of thing work is definitely a careful installation. Yeah. But if you do that right, then you should be fine. Yeah. Shims used to be, as James just said, shims used to be very common. Like I remember Giants at one point, my first good mountain bike was a giant xtc and i'm pretty sure that came with a shim as stock um it did yeah so uh yeah they used to be very common in the industry and there used to be no problem doing it so yeah just uh follow james's advice and you should be fine fun fact on those old aluminum giants the seat tube was actually reigned to be 30.8 millimeters yep. not 30.9 yep but you could cram a 30.9 seat post in there if you wanted to save weight because mm -hmm. I was a weight weenie back in the day, just like everyone else here. <laughs> we were talking about this before we hit record that we, so there's the, there's a forum called weight weenies, which we've all been part of at some point. We all need to go back and find our, our <laughs> logins and then go find the first post we ever made on the weight weenies forum as like proof that we're all massive nerds. <laughs> uh, it would probably, I, I think I would have been, I would like, 13 or something like that whenever i yeah. started did i well i mean i was i'm definitely older than you two but i actually need to go back and look i mean i know my account's still active but uh i don't know 
how much posting I ever actually did on weight weenies. I think I was more of a lurker. I, I used to submit weights to the listings. Oh, oh me too. I'm, I'm really yeah. I'm really bummed that that listing that you know I'm really bummed that that database hasn't been up, updated oh, in yeah. a really long time. Yeah, that's kind of when I stopped very, visiting the forum was when they stopped updating the listings. But uh, very disappointing. Yeah. But anyway, we're gonna wrap up the show for this week. But it's good that we're talking about this weight weenie thing because you definitely don't want to miss our next Nerd Alert podcast because it is going to be a full-on weight weenie nerd fest. Reason being. So Dave, unfortunately, will not be with us on the next episode. He's got a little project that he needs to tackle for cycling tips that you'll, you're going to see an awful lot of on YouTube in the next coming weeks and months. But we will have our new tech writer coming in from Northern Ireland, Ronan McLaughlin. Uh, you may know Ronan's name as a former record holder for the Everesting Challenge, uh, beating none other than, what was the guy's name? Albert? Al? Al Albert Katoder. Yeah. Oh yes, that guy. Yeah. That guy. Yeah, some some random some random Spanish dude. Uh, so uh, Ronan is certainly super super diehard weight weenie, and we're gonna pick his brain on a bunch of weight weenie tips and tricks. So definitely don't miss that one. Should be good. The weight weenie episode. Yes, it'll be good. It'll be good. Anyway, if you liked what you heard today, please make sure to subscribe to the Nerd Alert podcast. If you'd like, please give us a rating or even better, a review on iTunes uh, because it does help our friends and family find the podcast. Because, well, my mom is never going to find me because she still doesn't know what I do for a living. But perhaps, perhaps most importantly, tell your friends about the podcast because it, it certainly helps bring more people and listeners in. And last but not least, please consider becoming a Vela Club member because it really does help us bring you more things like this and get more creative without the con- uh, without the usual constraints of advertising. That's why we can get all ranty. Mostly. Pretty much. Mostly. Until we lose all of our advertising, <laughs> in which case we're just going to go out of business. That would be very unfortunate. Very true. But we can still get ranty. Yes, please <laughs> please, please do join Vela Club. It means a lot to us. It means a lot to Cycling Tips in general. And it's, uh, yeah, cyclingtips.com slash sign up. 79 bucks it's like two coffees a month or something it's cheap thank you it's the it's it's coming up to the holiday seasons buy buy membership for your friends yep anyway thanks again for listening we will see you again in two weeks bye 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 everybody yeah.